Back in December, in episode 13, I spoke with Dr. Ritika Shremali about the emergence of these recent farmers' protests in India. They're actually ongoing. And specifically, we talked about the political economy of the new farm laws, which have been passed by the Bharatiya Janta Party government under the leadership of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Now, these protests are still going on. And they're largely centered in the state of Punjab, but they're not limited to Punjab. The protests are led by various farmers groups, which first came to prominence in the 1980s as a new farmers movement. And they spoke about farmers issues in terms that were set by one prominent peasant leader, Charan Singh, who in fact was briefly, very briefly, the prime minister of India. And Charan Singh argued that there was a contradiction between Bharat or the countryside, which was the guardian of traditional values. And that was arraigned against India, which was the modern urban society. So Bharat versus India. And the point there was that urban society actually exploited rural society or the countryside. Now, this kind of argument has also been made by political economists such as Michael Lipton, who refer to it as urban bias in development policy. But critical political economists have labeled this framing as agrarian populism. And it's populism because it constructs a people and us versus them kind of thing. What that ends up doing is flattening a lot of the distinctions and differences that exist within these societies. What I mean is, in both urban and rural areas, richer classes and castes oppress and exploit laboring classes. So for critical political economists, the point is that peasants or farmers are not a class. Despite how we talk about them usually, they're a social group They do have a lot in common, but there are also very important differences in terms of access or disposal of labor, land, and capital. And so these differences, if we consider class to be about relationship to the means of production, means that there can be exploitation by richer classes of laboring classes. And what's more, class tends to correspond to caste, which means that there are some communities based on kinship who monopolize control of resources and exclude other communities from control of resources. And that is overlaid with social practices of power, exclusion, marginalization, including practices of untouchability. There's also a gendered division of labor, There are patriarchal norms about who can and cannot access land, which means that women who do a lot of work in the countryside tend not to be allowed to control land by men. So all of that means that there is a lot to having a critical approach to the power and the wealth of rich farmers. Now, when we're talking about rich farmers, it's really important to remember that we're not necessarily talking about people who have hundreds or thousands of acres of land, like not like a traditional kind of feudal landlord, nor are we necessarily talking about industrial magnates who have factories and you know big cars and all, all that kind of stuff. 
we may in more common usage refer to them as, as an upper middle class, a rural upper middle class. That said, many of them can and do make the leap to larger production and wealth. So they can upgrade, so to speak. Now, when you have farmers' movements or peasant movements, it is always useful to ask whose interests are being represented. That question has, in fact, also been raised to try and dismiss or criticize the current protests in India. There's these points about farmers who are eating pizza and have tractors, so it must mean they're rich. And, you know, if they're rich, why, why are they bothering to complain? But the actual issue is a lot more complicated than that. It can't be simplified to that. So the question that we have to ask is, what kinds of contradictions exist in the countryside between social classes and groups and gender? And are these kinds of contradictions being made even worse through a farmer's movement? Or are there bridges being built as different groups come together to protest these laws in common? And what does the farmer's movement mean for rural relations and agrarian relations in the future? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we discuss the relationship between power and production, between the past and the present, and between politics and economy. I am your host, Numan Ali. I am an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss the economic sociology of the farmers' movement in India, I invited Dr. Shreya Sinha who is a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Geography at the University of Cambridge in England. And she's also a reviews editor at the Journal of Agrarian Change. My sort of uh, disciplinary training is actually in history and development studies. And uh, my work is mainly about um, studying ag agrarian capitalism in, in Punjab. Uh, which I've now been doing for over seven years. And um, I started off with mostly looking at agrarian capital and commodity markets. And more recently, I've um, started working uh, also on labor and uh, social movements. What got you interested in agrarian issues and agrarian change? Yeah, so I think uh, my my earliest memory of kind of having interest in this is actually from my undergraduate days in history when I was uh, in the University of Delhi. So over there, as part of the curriculum, we had to kind of study capitalist transformation uh, and kind of the, you know, the transition debates. And that was kind of where I first got interested. And then I moved to uh, development studies and uh, my training was, uh, you know, by teachers who were kind of deeply rooted in um, questions of political economy. Uh, some of them also sort of members of the Communist Party of India, Marxist. So there was a kind of very heavy dose of critical political economy. And uh, that's how I kind of started uh, looking at these issues. I, in fact, did my first piece of primary re research um, with um, Adivasi or tribal populations in uh, uh, Maharashtra. So that was my first kind of uh, experience of you know, actually doing this type of work. And then that got you uh, to Punjab. Yeah, as my interests kind of evolved, I was very, um, you know, I was kind of interested in uh, 
questions of just capital and you know and and you know in this kind of uh, this kind of grand narrative around uh, um agrarian crisis in india there was a sort of interest in looking at uh, you know what does a class of capitalist farmers do and uh, and i think by the time i started my phd the sense was that if there's anywhere where i would be able to study um accumulation you know it it should be uh, punjab so i think that's how i uh, ended up uh, doing research there okay and and the thing about punjab i think is uh, that it's kind of that part of india where agrarian capitalism has developed the most intensely and the green revolution reforms were taken up the most over there but what we're seeing now is these massive protests that are being led by farmers especially farmers from punjab against the modi governments the bjp governments agrarian reforms and i spoke a little bit with dr uh, ritika shrimali earlier about about the kind of political economy of the reforms mm-hmm. and why they're being opposed but what's interesting is about the farmers unions that are leading these struggles that i think that you've engaged with these these farmers unions as well So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about these farmers unions. They came to prominence I believe in the 1980s. So why then? What was special about the 1980s that they came to prominence and who do they represent? Like what uh, what is what is a farmer? Who is a farmer in Punjab? Okay. So who is a farmer is a very profound question. Let's see if I get there somehow. <laughs> so of course you know uh, as well as I do that uh, you know Punjab both the Indian side and the Pakistani side has a long history of kind of agrarian mobilizations but uh, these particular unions came to prominence in the 1980s in the wake of the success of the green revolution so as part of the green revolution what really happened was that uh, through the introduction of you know high yielding variety seeds and you know intensive um, agriculture and cultivation practices uh, the farmers kind of came to have a marketable surplus and uh, the way they were reproducing themselves and accumulating capital was actually by um, you know through the sale of this marketable surplus so this was you know their dependence therefore on um, you know output prices and also uh, input prices because you know that's um, you know this is we're we're talking now of like deeply commercialized uh, agriculture right. uh, so their dependence on kind of input output prices was very uh, was a lot and of course in the case of uh, you know states of punjab and haryana and you know some other parts of india uh, the state itself uh, played a very important role in determining uh, these prices so on the input side it was through subsidies on the output side uh, it was through the minimum support prices uh, that uh, are kind of uh, and that are decided by the uh, commission for cost agricultural cost and prices uh, you know centrally but um, through the food corporation of india uh, you know these this price was administered so it was the food corporation of india that procured this marketable surplus of wheat and paddy for the public distribution system and uh, and the the cop- the corporation basically then gave a uh, minimum support price to the farmers that it was buying these crops from so very simply put this was what it was so it was the state that was um shaping these and the unions uh, 
fundamentally were basically uh, rallying around you know increasing the um the output prices and making sure that input prices were kept low because you know by the uh, so the you know the green revolution technologies were kind of started getting introduced by the late 60s and if you look at the research that is coming out in the 80s you can already see that there is some stagnation in yields yes. uh, it's being argued that you know pe- people aren't actually uh, able to get high returns so this kind of then becomes uh, the space where the unions are mobilizing uh, you know and making claims vis-a-vis the state okay so basically they're saying we we need more state intervention or or a certain kind of state intervention um to help us get past uh, uh an agrarian stagnation um issue uh, so what um I, I guess the question here is one one thing that Haruna Kramlodi talks about is mm-hmm. a bifurcation of the agrarian structure between a kind of corporate capitalistic more capitalist agriculture but these farmers that you're describing the ones who who were taken on um green revolution technologies and stuffs how how are they distinct uh you know as you say they are capitalists so how mm-hmm. are they distinct from the kind of um corporate agriculture Yeah so i think uh, this is a really good question and i think one where there is uh, to me there is sometimes this kind of analytical confusion and i find that uh, for example several activists or you know some academics also are kind of resistant to say that the farmers are capitalist you know uh, and sort of capital is almost conflated with the corporate uh which is probably a predicament of uh, you know living under kind of neoliberal globalization uh but um i think uh, it's very important to recognize that you know these are kind of the farmers are capitalists but it's not corporate agriculture because corporate agriculture is where you have a uh, a corporation whether it is a, a by which i mean a kind of private company uh, so this could be domestic or it could be transnational and uh it's the corporate that is the driving force of this agriculture and so it is kind of controlling also the production and uh, it is controlling the kind of you know so things upstream and downstream so to me corporate agriculture would be where a corporation is able to control both upstream and downstream um you know dimensions of of production and i think this is not what is happening uh in the kind of context that i'm talking about about them you know about these farmers as capitalist farmers because of course you can say that there are kind of corporate domestic and transnational corporations that are uh, you know that had a vested interest in green revolution or they were already you know selling these seeds or chemicals or uh, you know in some context some processing but uh, it's not the same as actually uh, being invested in production and controlling kind of all dimensions of agriculture so to me there is a kind of difference to be made between the two uh, i hope that makes sense yeah I, i guess what you're saying about the inputs and outputs or upstream and downstream linkages yeah that the the kind of we can we can call him a a small capitalist farmer does not have the same amount of control or influence over inputs and outputs as the corporate agriculture which um i mean the the only way i can think of it is is something like uh uh the thai thai corporate uh charun pokpan or cp group which mm-hmm. everything from um the the kind of 
in terms of their agricultural production of, of chickens, and I know that's not what we're talking about, but uh, yeah. poultry business, everything from the the final sale of of the chicken to uh, to the the feed that those chickens are being produced are vertically integrated in the, in the in the corporation. So mm. is is that is that a useful distinction? Like, is there a way you could maybe give us an example of, of a difference between a corporate and a, and a capitalist farmer? Yeah, no, that's that's kind of a very useful distinction to make. So, for example, uh, I would say that, uh, um, you know, corporate agriculture would be, you know, that, I mean, of course, it can take many forms, but, you know, it could be that uh, the corporate actually owns the land. Right. It could be that they actually, even if they haven't, they don't own the land, they lease the land. Uh, I suppose in some ways you could argue that, you know, contract farming represents a kind of corporate agriculture as well, because, you know, there are so many, even if there are kind of individual producers, they, their produce is kind of tied to a company you know, for a particular produce. So there is, uh, there is that kind of, there is scale, but there's also the way uh, different aspects of production are controlled. While when we talk about these farmers, they are kind of working on uh, plots, of course, plots of land that can be anywhere between, um, you know, an acre to, you know, uh, tens of uh, acres uh, in, in the Indian context. And uh, that would be, uh, you know, but they are still working on those plots and they kind of, they they do have the ability to choose sort of what they are growing, how they want to grow it. They could, you know, you know, 10 farmers could be getting seeds from 10 different places of 10, you know, from 10 different companies. And uh, even though, you know, technically you wouldn't see that kind of variety in the same location, but, but in principle, um, it's it's kind of more diffuse, um, yeah. So okay, so we have these more diffuse farmers who, hmm. uh, starting in the nineteen eighties, begin to uh, lobby or push the state, the government, for supporting input and output prices in a more um, uh, in a better way to help them with their production. Uh, but I guess the, the thing about when we start talking about capitalist farmers and uh, are these people that we want to support, um, there, there is a discussion in agrarian studies about agrarian populism uh, and people like Henry Bernstein have a critique of these kinds of farmers unions because even though their survival depends on state support, they mm -hmm. are nevertheless engaging in exploitation of workers, working class um, agricultural laborers who are often getting paid pretty poorly. And it's not just a, a relationship of class. There's also a caste dimension to it uh, mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, these, these farmers may be farmers who see their caste identity as tied to farming. Uh, and the, the landless workers are often Dalits who um, are facing not just a class exploitation, but a caste stigmatization and marginalization uh, questions of untouchability and and just um, lacking a lot of social power. I know, for example, that and, and this is true in Pakistan as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in many parts of Pakistan, like a person may have barely a quarter of an acre to their name, but they will still consider themselves to be uh, socially, culturally better and superior to the person who has no land, uh, which often maps onto caste as well. Um, so, so the question. Uh, 
in terms of agrarian populism then is? Can you help us try to understand a little bit um, some of these contradictions in terms of who's doing what, who gets what, the, the kind of the questions that Henry, Henry Bernstein asks of political economy? Yeah, so um, so actually I, I want to uh, just start with, you know, where you started this question from, which is, do we, should we kind of be supporting them? And I think one thing I just want to say before I answer the more specific questions around who does what, etc., is that, you see, whether we, um, how we approach the move, uh, movement depends also on the political moment and what is the axis of conflict at that time. So, I mean, I just, it's just something I want to flag and, you know, just uh, want you to bear in mind and, uh, and I'll, I'll come to this again, but I think that, that's sort of uh, one of the things that I, I just uh, want to talk about. But of course, I mean, you're absolutely right. These kinds of distinctions uh, exist um, in, in the, you know, as in Pakistan, also in the Indian Punjab and uh, the rest of India, of course. And uh, the thing is that um, there are, of course, these large farmers who uh, own, uh, you know, I mean, large again, you know, by the government stipulation, large would be anyone over um, basically four acres, uh, sorry, four hectares of land. So basically anyone over 10 acres would be considered uh, a large farmer. And in fact, even, even colloquially, you would see that those who have land over 10 acres and locally in the village, they would say this one is a, you know, he's a tagda jimidar, okay. so a strong farmer. So this is, uh, so of course these farmers, they have the advantage of scale they are typically uh, going to, uh, so whatever they produce, you know, they have the advantage of uh, producing more. So they have, you know, higher returns, etc. Uh, they're also typically, you know, they have more kind of, they're more mechanized. So you would have, you know, they would have more tube wells than kind of smaller farmers. They would probably have more than one tractor. A few of them would have combined harvesters. Um, they would often be the people in the kind of rental markets of uh, agricultural machinery. They would be the people renting things out rather than, you know, renting things in. So um, I think those are kinds of very fundamental differences in Punjab. I think the larger farmers are also more likely to have some kinds of attached labor. Uh, the you know, the forms of which have changed over the decades, but they are likely to have uh, that as well. And then there are kind of, uh, you know, farmers that are smaller than that. Uh, who, of course, are then, you know, struggling with kind of returns. They're probably, their cost of production is likely higher because, uh, you know, not just because of the returns, but again, precisely for, because of what I said earlier, they, they might be actually renting uh, machinery. And so that kind of drives right, up right. costs. Uh, and uh, and uh, many of them would be doing, you know, labor on their own on their farms also. So that's that can happen, though not always. It can vary depending on, you know, who's in the household, whether they have a male working member, etc. Um, so and and this kind of landed group in Punjab, at least, is mostly, uh, you know, jut. And then there is kind of a large landless population in Punjab. Almost 30% is land, are landless Dalits. 
uh, who you know used to be um, you know mainly work as agricultural labor till a few decades ago many of them would also be attached labor the men of course and uh, over a period of time the kind of attached labor uh, tradition has de- you know has declined considerably many of them have started working in the non agricultural sector so male members are not uh, you know landless dalit men are not very commonly working in agriculture uh so i would say it's i mean as a ballpark i would say sort of 50 50 there could be 50% of the some men in the village landless dalits who are doing some agricultural work and others who don't do any right. um this is like really really ballpark of course <laughs> and then the women of course the the women of these households are doing uh different kinds of agricultural work sometimes it can be you know in some pockets they could be doing paddy transplanting but most of that work is actually done by migrant labor from uh, you know up uh, uttar pradesh and bihar in eastern india and then of course they are involved with dairy they are involved with cutting fodder they could be doing the odd um jobs here and there so there is this kind of stratification around class caste gender um yeah and of course that leads to contradictions and has implications for politics uh so can you can you give give us a sense of some of these contradictions yeah of course so so um so for example we were talking about the unions before uh the farmer unions that uh, came to prominence in the 1980s and uh, you know those were what were called as the uh, new farmers movements and right. uh, in 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 north india this took the form of the bharatiya kisan union which is of course now i think you know now it has many many factions uh within punjab itself let alone in also in haryana and in uttar pradesh so uh so these unions uh were often kind of accused of have been uh you know accused of being representative of interests of only the large farmers that have the large marketable surplus and um uh the reason i mean and this is kind of uh, interesting because of course uh, the reason why this has been argued is because the the unions focused predominantly on input and output prices and the argument is that of course they were going to you know these large farmers would benefit the most from them right uh the thing is that of course by this time you know even small farmers are deeply um you know part deeply commercialized and they are linked to kind of circuits of capital uh, in a particular way so they also actually benefit from higher uh, input and output prices but the but the problem then is that the unions focused on this at the exclusion of uh, you know at the expense of any other kinds of issues so and these other kinds of issues for example uh, would be something like the land sealing act so in in the indian punjab the land ceiling you know the la- uh, the ceiling for the best quality land is 17 acres and of course this is something that just um stayed you know on the back burner for the unions similarly you know access to credit so even for the, the cooperative societies uh the credit was uh, you know to small farmers or to landless um landless um dalits i mean cooperative credit was very very difficult for them to access and there was a lot of unevenness there um 
so in that sense you know within so in that sense they were said to be only looking after the interests of the large farmers right and then there is the whole other issue which brings in uh, you know the caste dimension which is because these farmers uh, were all jacked and the landless laborers were all dalits um not just in punjab in fact if you read uh, the writing on uh, new farmers movements also in uttar pradesh uh, there's a similar kind of uh, argument that actually one of the reason one of the ways in which the farmers movement could be so cohesive was because th- they were you know and the large farmers could also mobilize the small farmers was because of this kind of caste identity and because right. they were able to assert you know they were whatever they were they were definitely anti labor right so so that kind of that kind of unity was also created so then there was this other kind of contradiction that was between you know who is a farmer and then the farm labor were were not sort of part of this uh movement so those kinds of um differences or contradictions that you can see uh and that's that's really interesting when we think about it in the pakistani context as well we've had mm-hmm. recently these movements um called pakistan kisan ittehad mm-hmm. which is pretty much uh pakistan peasant uh, farmer union um and uh one of my former students uh his name is yahya aftab he he went and actually did some research primary research uh and he found that the leadership is completely dominated by these large farmers who in pakistan mm-hmm. are much larger than uh in, in terms of uh farm size are much larger than than indian farmers but the, the large farmers dominate the movement but there is a consonance of interests between smaller farmers and larger farmers um and yeah both of them i mean pki does not even have anything resembling a, a land policy or a discussion about land rights for for uh, landless workers so i think those dynamics are are very interesting uh, in how similar they are between um pakistan and india and what you're describing uh that said some of what you've written about recently mm-hmm. is also about how these protests may be generating I, and and I don't know how optimistic we're supposed to be about this but they may be uh moving toward a a kind of uh cross class unity or a cross caste unity um so i'm i'm wondering and you describe that there is these structural conditions uh that have changed the nature of contradictions you talk about the agrarian crisis as well as the question of land scarcity is maybe leading to a convergence of interests yeah so uh, this is a you know this is a relatively more recent development and uh, i mean it's very um, heartening in one way but of course uh, one needs to dawn um, you know dawn their uh, political economy or you know class hat and class analysis hat and see what's really happening so uh, of course i think see what has happened is that the green revolution technologies plateaued in the 80s and the 90s and um and you know the returns have stagnated against at least the traditional uh, crops that are associated with the green revolution which is wheat and paddy and uh, there has been kind of uh, you know post liberalization you know the government has slashed a lot of subsidies i think the only input that only kind of fertilizer that there is still subsidy on in india is urea and everything else the subsidies are either kind of decontrolled or reduced and uh, 
so basically it's become very very difficult for small farmers across the country to uh, to make ends meet and uh, so the thing is that in that sense what happens then to small farmers of course is that they're not making enough money from agriculture and they're kind of getting dependent also on you know some kind of non farm employment or some kind of petty business and uh, you know the land is then just kind of some offers some kind of security mm-hmm. uh, they're also often chronically indebted uh not just to uh, you know formal uh formal sector credit so you know formal sector credit or banks when they have access to it but also of course mostly to uh the informal money lenders which in this context are usually commission agents or artias in in the mandi the regulated wholesale uh, market yards so so that of course puts the small farmers in a very difficult position but also in some ways it kind of resonates with the issues that some of the landless uh farm workers have in some way which is that you know they don't have enough employment in wage employment in agriculture because it's been quite mechanized so there's less and less wage employment from farming itself um and of course they're also kind of then dependent on uh some you know some casual employment in construction or something of that sort so that kind of creates a this this sort of insecurity of you know livelihood income food whatever uh, you know you want to call it it kind of creates some commonality of interests um and that's uh, that's how the some of the unions have um have worked on it and that's how they have uh, created some kind of a common platform for these two so small farmers and the um landless laborers to come together and that process has been going on by you know uh, by some of the unions you know a couple of them uh, for the past 20 years or so but in this particular moment there is a you know there's actually a different sort of thing happening also in the context of these protests there's also a different issue which is that you will see even the larger farmers so even the unions that are typically meant to be seen as associated with kind of large farmer unions even they are accepting and calling out and uh, for uh, landless laborers to be involved for um, you know for for dalits or people from the bahujan samaj which is uh, which includes uh, uh, you know other backward classes and uh, you know all kinds of oppressed classes so that's what we call the bahujan uh, samaj in india so so uh, encouraging them to also uh, be part of it and that i think is explained by a slightly different issue which is rooted in the laws itself the new farm laws and the new farm laws because they they are threatening to dismantle the entire infrastructure of the green you know that was set up by the green revolution which was the source of you know income security and also accumulation for these larger farmers as well so it's kind of perceived as an attack on all farmers and as the movement has evolved and there's been this common platform of so many different unions they've also come to realize that actually they're not going to achieve anything if they also don't bring on board people you know caste groups and class castes and classes that are not 
the dominant caste and classes in rural areas so that's why you have these the, in this particular protest you have unions uh, all kinds of unions also participating and you know calling for um you know celebrating uh, ravidas jayanti so ravidas was uh, one of the uh, you know gurus or one of the leaders of uh, the dalit caste so he's one of the their gurus and uh, on you know on april 14th now you have something called the safe constitution uh, day and just yesterday i was listening to an interview by some farmer leaders where they were saying actually that event will be led by uh people of the bahujan samaj so th- there is a uh, you know there is a long term thing that has been happening by some unions for the past 20 years and there is this particular moment where you know things are happening and people are coming together in some kind of tentative solidarities that's actually really interesting so i w- i wonder if we can pick those two things apart so you you talked about i mean i have i have maybe three questions here the yeah. first thing is you talk about differences amongst farmers unions and you'd already mentioned that they'd factionalized there's so many factions of them yeah. um and as you're pointing out some of them have been working for a long time on like 20 years uh, on yeah. on the issue of intercaste kind of solidarity whereas others maybe uh, for more recent reasons are, are thinking about that so can you tell us a little bit about the the factions and differences amongst these farmers unions and which ones have been um focusing on intercaste unity and and why what is their particular motivation yeah so i think there is a uh, the differences are entirely ideological <laughs> and uh, there are some factions of the bharatiya kisan union that uh, just focused on the input output prices and you know in in the other kind of new farmers movement sort of sort of declined in the 90s and there was they kind of lost some space both because of internal politics and because some of them you know also dabbled with political parties so that also led to uh, uh, with elect- so they dabbled in electoral politics and that led to some divisions because there were people who didn't actually want to do that they, they thought that the strength of the uh, farmers movement was and has always been that it is apolitical in you know a political in the sense of a not electoral uh, not invested in electoral politics i mean those kinds of uh, you know dynamics led uh, farmer led the unions to uh, um, get divided into different factions so the thing is that uh, some of the unions so the one union that has actually been working a lot across caste and class is the uh is the bhartik kisan union uh, ekta ugraha which is headed by uh, joginder singh ugraha who was actually part of the bigger uh, uh bhartik kisan union since the 1980s so uh, he was part of it but he then you know he and some others they kind of split and so this particular faction of the union um i think it's there it's really the reason i say that it's illogical is that um it they are really motivated they, as they say their their politics is informed by you know shahid bhagat singh it's informed by gurnanak and so there is this a uh, very strong sense of justice social justice uh, involved these are left leaning unions mm. effectively and they actually have no problem uh, saying this also i think uh, they just you know so they are clearly identified as the more left leaning unions and actually uh, if you yeah so i think as they've kind of tried to uh, 
you know the thing is that in, in my uh, for example the little work i've done with bharatiya kisan union ekta agraha um i realized that they, they've actually worked just ground up i remember my conversation with joginder singh and he he kind of said you know and i also asked him the same question that how did you kind of start thinking of doing this and he said you know it's just that i was doing things and i realized that well this is the problem these are the biggest problems that the um that this that the rural society of punjab has and we just need to keep finding ways of fixing it through practice yeah through pra- so this is like really uh, this is praxis you know this is this is how we have learned and there's an ideological motivation uh around justice around dignity around uh, and of which equality of you know of which land is actually a very important part and they they do think that having a uh, redistributive land reforms would benefit uh the majority of the people in in the state so there is kind of that uh motivation and they they are also in their um, in their kind of outlook to um economic policies so macroeconomic policies uh, they are very clear about uh, you know very explicitly they oppose the imf the world bank uh, they are very clear about the fact that actually there is no difference in the economic policies of the congress or of the bharatiya janata party or of the aam aadmi party they are very clear about this and they openly critique uh, you know n- uh, neoliberalism or uh, you know which we call navodarvad or uh, imperialism or samrajyavad so they they use these terms in their discourse and on, in how they mobilize the their cadres and that's unique as in the other the larger farmers or or the other ones that are more conservative they will not specifically target neoliberalism or imf or world bank yeah it is it is uh, i mean it's see there are others like the kirti kisan union which is also you know left leaning and uh, they are also very kind of clear about being op- opposed to neoliberalism very very clear so uh, but the thing is that with the kirti kisan union i think the focus is more on small farmers not so much on building these linkages across small farmers and landless laborers or at, at least not up until recently so maybe that has changed you know in the last year or so it's not i mean since i've not been that's not possible for me to comment on that but their focus is on those kinds of issues with the others um the others don't explicitly do this not anymore although uh, what is worth remembering or recalling in co- the context of the farmers movements in india is that when india became part of the uh, of wto and uh, the and the you know the general agreement on trade and tariff in the 90s uh, the, um, the the bharatiya kisan union uh, in north india at least the the unions in north india had actually opposed this um very very strongly right and uh, of course that didn't come to anything so there is a there has been a tradi- there has been there is a longer legacy of opposing this kind of uh, this you know this uh, being part of the wto and this these liberalization policies there's a longer history to that but you know as time passed not many raised these issues explicitly so there are few that do and the others um, never did not until recently in any case but now it's hard because they're all they now now in this moment they only speak together 
in as part of the sanyuk kisan morcha which is the joint farmers front so they only speak uh, together and uh, bharatiya kisan union ekta ugraha is actually not part of the not formally part of the sanyuk kisan morcha they've tried to uh, stay independent uh, but of course they participate also in their uh, meetings they just formally have maintained some independence Yeah. Okay, that's that's super interesting, and I think mm-hmm. one thing you were also pointing to is that uh, Iktao Graha has uh, also given strong consideration to gender issues. So, what does that look like? Yeah, so this again, uh, I think it also comes from Punjab's uh, very strong uh, and uh, long tradition of mobilizing rural women. uh which also you know something i discovered uh, to my pleasant surprise when i was doing research so a lot of it uh, has come already from the um from the you know the cultural front so uh, you know in the years of um, the khalistan movement uh in the in the 80s and uh, you know state terrorism and so that period it was obviously very tense for the common man but there were groups that were remaining kind of steadfast both against the uh, the 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 sikh extremists and against the kind of atrocities of the state and uh, you know the the cultural uh, front uh, they they had they have these people's theater movement and there are some iconic uh, um uh people is part of this theaters movement who are known to have been very clear about you know um involving uh, uh rural women and making sure that rural women are also turning out and attending these uh these theater shows you know these ni- these uh, uh plays and poetry that they were doing all night because you know f- people couldn't go anywhere any uh um, you know there's there's one of these people one of these theater artists was someone called goshan singh and uh his um daughter is uh, nafshan singh who in an interview recently uh, said how goshan singh who is very fondly actually in punjab everyone just says paaji to him so you know who they're talking about if they say that so um so so nafshan singh says that her father actually used to not let a a, a theater uh, show like a a, th- a play start unless he had made sure that all the women had also come out to watch it so you see they have so this has been a tradition and of course this is then these were left these were also left leaning uh, groups and uh, this has led to kind of a, tr- a longer legacy of women being mobilized and uh, the unions um have uh, some of these unions have of course uh, uh, capitalized on it this is not just uh, bharatiya kisan union ugraha also uh, i think bharatiya kisan union dakonda punjab kisan union so there are a few few like this uh, vis-a-vis women um and they so they uh, have tried to also um include women in the mobilization and the reason they are also able to do this is because of uh, you know the the reproductive role of women and when there is a crisis in the household or the male member uh, commits suicide um, or the male member dies by suicide i should say um, then basically you know the entire burden of this falls on the woman the woman also is 
likely to be taking care of livestock which has also become harder and harder over the years so it's on those kinds of basis that they have involved uh, women you know not just as cadre but also as leaders but like also speaking and also lead, you know taking leadership to the extent possible which of course is great and and also uh, unique uh, vis-a-vis many parts of uh, india not all though yeah and, and would you say that that's uh, that's general like even the more conservative bku factions have significant women's involvement or is that more of a left leaning thing yeah no no it's not a general thing at all <laughs> i think this is really uh, some of these groups that uh, some of these more left leaning groups that do it and uh, um the the more the more mainstream ones you don't have women being involved in them at all and uh, uh, you can see uh, you know the you can see the you can see this also in the fact that actually it's not very common for women to come in haryana in, in haryana or in uttar pradesh to be participating in farmers movements it's only the left ones so in in in, in haryana also it's idwa which is the all india democratic women's association associated with this uh, communist party of india marxist um where women are kind of very involved but uh, they don't come out in such numbers it's only actually with this movement that uh, there are so many kind of women who have for the first time uh, participated in a political uh, uh, event you know political mobilization around farmers issues so there are many testimonies of women from uttar pradesh haryana rajasthan where this is the first time they've um, come out so it's not a general thing at all no that's really interesting i think that's something we in pakistan can maybe learn from the left wing uh, bk uses how to mobilize women uh, it's very difficult in pakistan uh, for, for <laughs> the patriarchy is is strong here as well Mm-hmm. um so that, that and what you're talking about is really interesting that these political mobilizations recently are some of the first times that even the kind of more mainstream farmers movements have had to give consideration to mobilizing dalits mo- mobilizing landless workers mobilizing women mobilizing bahujan samaj um uh members because it's about building a broader coalition uh against a political uh enemy it's not it's not simply a, a question of of prices it's actually a question of law now uh on a very broad scale and and mm-hmm. so uh i think one thing i read was that even as late as um june 2020 there were panchayats in punjab who had declared uh a a a freeze on wages like we're not going to pay landless workers any more than then mm. uh, such and such a wage and anyone who does will be sanctioned socially boycott hojaigaonka uh, and stuff like that mm. so uh, has has this kind of broader political mobilization changed those kinds of dynamics are are people paying their landless workers more no that is the short <laughs> that is the short answer uh, see i mean you know the thing is that i mean that's the difficult question i mean that's the really difficult question you know because uh, just because right now we are seeing this movement where uh, there is an attempt by the leadership to create a broad coalition of interest it does not mean that uh, 
that you know kind of deep structural issues can be wished away and i would i'm sure that it will i mean i hope i'm wrong but i'm i'm pretty sure it's not going to uh happen uh in that way because um yeah i mean it's just you see i mean objectively their interests are in conflict right in just i mean the if the farmer pays higher wages to the laborers they are going to have higher costs of production so this just objectively there is a conflict there but at the moment i think it's also that the laws are just so far reaching and i'm sure your conversation with uh, uh, ritika also uh, brought this out i mean they are so far reaching if they are implemented uh, that uh, it is that is also why they're able to you know gather support in this way because it's not just that it's going to dismantle state procurement of wheat and paddy that's not the only thing that happens here the thing that happens is that you dismantle state support of wheat and paddy you create therefore create a situation where of course other farmers in you know you create you remove the benchmark against which farmers can make those kinds of claims from the state altogether right you the removal of the kind of undermining of state procurement also means that you you won't ha- you're likely to then uh, not have enough to uh, supply to the public distribution system which of course is not just for the r- rural poor but also the urban poor okay right. and so that's the other thing and then you have the whole issue of deregulation the the kind the fact that the alternatives that are being uh, that is being created is basically completely uh, a kind of deregulated market so it's really uh, a free hand to uh, the private sector to do whatever uh, they want in fact the laws have no uh, provisions around you know data on anything on prices on markets you know on uh, volume so there is no regulation despite whatever the government claims uh, there are issues around the contract farming act so i mean there there are the put together if you put these laws you know if you see them in their totality they are so far reaching that it has created a basis around which people are able to mobilize together and it has come along with the law you know simmering resentment against the establishment and uh, of course there is the you know there is the issue of the you uh, constitutionality of the laws because this is the laws you know agriculture is a state subject and the supreme court still needs to hear the matter of the constitutionality of the law is still pending before the supreme court and uh, uh, but most lawyers and most people who are experts on you know federal structure of india are saying that this is uh, an you know, this is a breach of the federal principles of the constitution so uh, there are there are kind of so many issues <laughs> around the the laws that i think it kind of has brought many of these people uh, together in this moment because they feel that there is a larger enemy that needs to be dealt with even the 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 you know the labor leaders uh, activists none of them are saying that they they think that because of this you know they won't have to fight the more difficult more uh, kind of quite violent battles uh, that they do in their villages uh, they will but they think that this in this moment they need to fight this kind of uh, you know big enemy and they hopefully will raise awareness and raise consciousness through these this movement to 
to kind of use them in the future and i think that's the approach at the moment and uh, just on the issue of mainstream you know i just struck me as you were saying that the mainstream uh, unions don't involve the women i just want to say uh, you know the bharatiya kisan union ugraha is the largest uh, farmer union in in punjab really okay it is the largest union so actually it is the mainstream <laughs> so i mean of course it's not that doesn't mean that it is spread over everywhere it's it's absolutely not there are particular places where it is quite strong and in terms of membership it is quite strong and i think uh, all the farm unions are, i think are seeing a rise in membership uh, there are so many in punjab you know they are so different and uh, it's such a small state but there are so many different uh, unions but it's the largest so the we call the others the mainstream because uh, because i think they are associate they are like the other farm unions in other Uh, regions you know the other main ones and they kind of associated we associate them with the new farmers movement that we see from the 80s so um yeah so just, i just wanted to uh, clarify that <laughs> okay <laughs> that okay that's that's actually interesting i didn't realize that they were the mm-hmm. um the the largest although it kind of makes sense uh in that way but one thing you just said that it was it was really interesting to me because i don't think we we actually uh, touched on this which is that the contradiction between farmers and laborers can get violent uh and there's often violent struggles um and i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what this violence looks like uh and especially in maybe in the context of um pessimism versus optimism about agrarian populism of this kind Uh, like if those struggles are so violent then then what possibilities does this now broader mobilization hold for uh, for more just outcomes yeah okay so the violence of course um has been takes many forms uh one is around uh, has been in recent years it has been also around land so for example um the there is an organization called the zameen prapti sangharsh samiti which basically uh, is an organization to that struggles to uh, ensure that uh, dalits in a village have access to the panchayat land so by law uh, one third of the panchayat land uh, needs to be um, you know has should be uh, in the control of the dalits and it should be auctioned properly and all that and so there has been a struggle to make sure that there is they have access to the common land the panchayat land or the shamlat and basically this land uh, obviously you know it has uh, it has been illegally encroached either by uh, local um, elites or uh, even in some cases i think government officials so um there is so this struggle has been actually very successful in some pockets but they've actually had to face a lot of struggle so it can it can take i mean this is this is your usual fare it can involve guns and beatings and you know uh, uh, you know ransacking houses and then of course it can involve uh, so th- there has been a lot of that in in recent years as dalits have started asserting their right to the common village common land uh, in general of course violence of course takes the form of sexual assault also of dalit women in any case a lot of this is very um 
you know dalit women that are working in the fields or cutting fodder they're always very vulnerable uh, to this kind of violence and yeah that is of course another another form that uh, this takes very important and also one of the issues that has been raised by farm labor unions like the punjab khet mazdoor union and also the bharatiya kisan union ugrahan some other farmer unions and uh, there is some kind of you know mobilization uh, uh, around this um now and the other incident that you kind of mentioned that happened last year i mean in the wake of the pandemic and the lockdown that happened in india uh it was that you know because so much of the uh, paddy transplanting is done by migrant workers from uh, eastern india of course as they were not able to come the local labor was kind of asking for higher wages mm. and i think in some cases they were you know they were just kind of almost uh, uh not allowed to leave the village you know not allowed to work in other places so that they could raise the you know they the uh, rate you know ask for higher wages um so i mean so there's that kind of coercion as well so of course as you can see it takes many forms uh i mean in terms of i i i just almost want to i mean i, I wish i could be more optimistic about this but i think in general i think th- there is i would still err on the side of pessimism i don't think that this movement even if it is successful in terms of getting the three laws scrapped and uh, and have a kind of legal minimum support price put in place um i think these kinds of conflicts are going to continue and uh there may be i mean if you're optimistic you could say there may be less violence because they've at least shared space and there has hopefully been some understanding of um each other's issues but i i mean that's i think it's a bit far fetched to say that i think those kind of that kind of tension is going to um uh, be there for a while i i i don't have a more i don't have a clearer answer to this okay that's i i that i think uh, ritika also said something very similar she she wasn't particularly optimistic about this um Well I guess I guess uh this question of of contradiction between capital and labor at at this uh kind of lower level uh, makes me then wonder about some of the rest of your work which is about the accumulation strategies of um of rich farmers or capitalist farmers uh mm-hmm. and you talk about how they uh are are looking to invest in non farm stuff as well uh and you spoke earlier about small farmers looking for petty businesses or non-farm employment mm. um how do you think the farm laws would change that or rather how the the protests would shape these kinds of uh, accumulation strategies and the kind of semi-proletarianization or or semi-agriculturization <laughs> um so i think that um the Yeah I mean how how should I say this the see I think that there is going see the the thing is that uh, one of the things that I feel is that actually a lot of farmers want to diversify okay but a lot of farmers are not able to diversify in the way that they want to mm. 
and that means that there are some that are of course very very successful they've become traders some have also invested in a rice mill or you know other kinds of businesses education schools or you know uh, marriage venues or things like that so some of course have been able to do it but the large majority i think have not been able to do that and the reason for that is that um i don't think as i also argue in that paper that i have published in third world quarterly is that it's the the overall economy doesn't support that that this kind of diversification so to me the question of how whether they are going to be able to diversify to diversify or not is not so much linked to these laws as it is to the economic condition of the state and of the national economy itself and i think that again as at the moment as we speak the way things are they are certainly do, they certainly don't look like it'll they'll improve they they there would probably be a uh, if the laws are implemented and if the uh, you know the outcomes are as uh, as uh, adverse as many of us think they would be uh, then of course there would be an even greater desire to move out and find something else that is lucrative or provide subsistence but uh, but i i don't think that that will be possible on the other hand there is you know the there is probably a small section of farmers that has diversified into trade of uh, you know vegetables or fruits or um has been able to invest in some kind of storage processing transportation mm. it is possible that there is a section of this the, this section of farmers is able to get some benefits out of uh, the uh, expect the anticipated corporatization of agriculture because even now if you see um that even now with the companies that are already there they do often trade directly with some of the larger farmers so i i don't actually think in that sense that one shouldn't expect that the laws if they were implemented it would lead to some wholesale immiserization of the rural of the farmers i don't think that's going to happen uh i i think there will be a group it could be that it's a much smaller group uh but that will kind of this would this is my kind of guess yeah this is all hypothetical so that's also the issue i think there there will be a section of farmers that would be poised to uh get some benefit it's not clear to us at this moment what those could be but from the existing record that we have in from different parts of the country likely that some get some benefit out of it and many more are uh, disadvantaged so yeah so that would increase uh, kind of class differentiation in the countryside yeah. even more yeah definitely so if you could say that what they, it would do is it would definitely um you know intensify class differentiation and i mean but the thing is that of course even the kind of larger more powerful you know the the larger capitalist farmers it's not that you know i mean they also they do depend on the on the state procurement systems now in in their current profile you know in their current portfolio of accumulation they do depend on that so the thing is that there is a threat to them you know there is a threat to their existing portfolio 
of accumulation at the moment and that's what they're fighting against and but there's a deeper thing that you know the state actually to me fundamentally through these laws um i think what the laws really do is they actually they actually create a situation where you can't where the state is just exiting from agriculture mm-hmm. in this very and that is very scary i think for farmers because if the state is there there is a promise of something you know you can hold the state accountable you can demand something and right now i think the way it looks is that the state just wants to exit completely and that even for the most uh, you know for the what should i say even for the most um powerful savvy capitalist farmer that is not a very uh, promising scenario um yeah <laughs> I think I think we have very similar dynamics in, in <laughs> Pakistan here as well where there is this constant debate about should the state be involved in agriculture in what ways should the state be involved in agriculture um so I think just by way of conclusion I would I would ask you um maybe maybe a two part kind of question in terms of if if you're speaking to students whether they're in India or even in Pakistan about mm. the importance of agricultural questions you know what do you think is their importance now uh even as you said everybody wants to diversify they kind of want to get out of agriculture in some ways but so then what is the importance of agriculture for you and based on on all of the things that we've talked about how what do you think is the kind of lens or approach that we should bring when we're considering agriculture and questions of of the agrarian society Yeah I think there are two things that make uh agriculture very important despite the crisis despite people wanting to move out one is that um there is uh, you see I mean in countries like ours uh there is a large majority of the population is still rural or has some ties to the land so um that is an important thing and it's an important thing not just because it is but it's an important thing because um where are they going i mean typically you would understand that you know farmer you know rural populations in in kind of some sort of mainstream understanding of development you would expect farmers to then become urban workers yeah so you would move from there would be a structural transformation from agriculture to industry but in a lot of countries of the global south it has not happened in this kind of idyllic way and you know people and so you have these kind of you know populations that are not absorbed into the into industry they are they're sort of surplus but you know or they are kind of circular seasonal migrants and uh, what that means is that they still you know land and agriculture is still still the basis of some subsistence and that is not a small thing it's not something that you know if if the if governments were just going to say okay you know we are going to take away all the land but we are going to give everybody you know amazing social security so that there is you don't need to worry about anything sure maybe that's a position we can consider seriously but that's not going to happen in any of our countries so that land based livelihood and trying to secure it becomes significant from that point of view the other issue of course is food because i mean in some ways you could in some sense say that you know 
you can have a company on all the land and they would still produce enough to feed everybody but of course we know that, that doesn't happen and land then does become an issue uh, you know there are, there are kind of links to food security in general that i think are also important for developing or post colonial countries